The class of fighting on the Somme is an eye-opener to all of our men. The intense artillery of both sides tend to unnerve the very best. Curtain or barrage fire was entirely new to the oldest of our soldiers. The idea is to establish an impassable wall of steel and shrapnel, either in front of our men advancing or behind the country attacked, so as to prevent reinforcements coming up. We know from personal experience what a German barrage is like. Our own must be terrible, as I believe we fire three to the German one. Sapper J. Julin, 1st Anzac Corps, Rosier, the Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 16, The Somme. The diggers grind it out. Let's start off with a wicked big thank you for all of the recent reviews on iTunes. I really, really appreciate them. And they help the BFWWP get noticed. In fact, the other day I went looking and could actually find it amongst the other history podcasts. This has been a running joke in my family. But it is awesome. It really, really is. Thank you so much for the recent uh, reviews. Also, many thanks to listener Bob, who sent in great photos of the Pozier battlefield. These are posted or will be posted on the Facebook, Twitter, and firstworldwarpodcast.com for all to see. The view from the windmill really shows just how flat the land is there. And that was, of course, one of the many reasons for heavy Australian casualties. Bob also provided some photos of Mamet's wood some time ago. And those uh, have been uh, and or will be posted as well. Thank you very much, Bob. As the 24th of July, 1916 dawned, much of Pozier was in Australian hands. Despite heavy casualties, the diggers were feeling pretty good about how the attack had gone so far. In the afternoon, another German counterattack hit the village, but the Australians held the line, and the German Reserve Infantry Regiment 86 was destroyed by a hurricane of artillery and a scythe of bullets. A Lance Corporal Horton later recalled, We, in the fullness of our conceit, and the depth of our ignorance congratulated ourselves on the success we had made and were not slow in saying that the magnitude of the victory was out of all proportion to the number of casualties. We were young and had much to learn. The next 60 hours taught quite a lot about attacks and the aftermath thereof. On the other side of the line, German General von Bain switched his 9th Reserve Army Corps' tactics. Forgoing costly infantry counterattacks, he ordered a massive artillery barrage laid down on Pozier village. If he couldn't have it, then he would for damn sure make the Australians regret they had taken it. That lull in the storm 
the Australians had enjoyed the previous day vanished with finality on the 24th. The Germans switched their fire from the Anzac rear areas to the frontline trace, and a crushing wall of shellfire now came down on the Australians in Pozieres. Like Verdun, the Somme battlefront was showing that artillery was king on the battlefield. Without the guns obliterating the ground in front of an attacking force, ground simply couldn't be attacked with any realistic hope of success. Even then, as we saw on the 1st of July, you'd better have the right kinds of guns pumping out rounds by the thousands. Von Bain's orders put every gun in his command spitting fire and hate at the Australians ceaselessly. Even the Gallipoli veterans of the Anzacs had never experienced anything like what the Germans were now putting out. Many of the Australian troops dug down as best they could with their entrenching tools. Most of the men detailed to carry shovels and picks for the consolidation phase had dropped the tools in the breathless rush forward. These were now desperately missed. Inside the ruins of Pozier, the air quickly became unbreathable. Smoke and brick dust filled the air as the incoming shells smashed, squashed, splattered, and split anything they landed on. The best the men inside could do was stay low, pressing themselves into the earth at the bottom of their holes, knowing they were utterly helpless against the artillery. Casualties soared, depleting companies quickly. But the 1st Australian Division had to keep pushing forward. Pozier needed to be fully secured, and the problem of the two OG trenches had to be removed. On the night of the 24th to the 25th, new attacks were launched even though the jump-off positions were under fire. These attacks were launched with little preparation, and with the unbearable artillery situation, communications with higher command was spotty at best. German resistance was fierce, but the rest of Pozier's smoldering brick piles were captured by 3.30 a.m. The Germans struck back five hours later. Infantry Regiment 157 attacked and it got sucked into a bitter fight for the Schwarzwaldgraben at the northwest end of Pozier with the diggers. And Unteroffizier Wabnik left a pretty harrowing account of the struggle in the Black Forest Trench, as told in Jack Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme. During the afternoon, the British succeeded in bypassing us. We now fought on two fronts. We threw hand grenade after hand grenade ceaselessly. We fired round after round from the rifles until the barrels glowed red hot. Our courage began to falter in the face of overwhelming enemy strength, but Reserve Leutnant Neugebauer shouted loudly at us to hold on and throw one grenade after another at the British. Our casualties were high. One comrade after another fell to the floor of the trench, shot through the head. The little group of fighters shrank steadily. Some of the men were, were gripped with trench frenzy and launched themselves at the enemy with spades, only to be beaten to death with rifle butts. In front of us and behind us, our dead and those of the enemy heaped up. Things continued like this until darkness fell. 
Then the enemy pulled back a bit and we could take a breather for a few moments. There were about 20 of us forced, because of the British attacks, into a 50-meter section of trench. We were surrounded on all sides by the British. Obstinately, we hung on to our position and would not allow ourselves to be ejected. We could not have lasted very much longer, however. We had almost run out of ammunition, and we had very few hand grenades. Our one and only machine gun had been knocked out long before. The British called on us in German to surrender. We replied with hand grenades. After it became somewhat quieter, we realized how serious our situation was. There could be no question of rescue. Where would it come from? We prepared ourselves to be marched off to London. We destroyed the bolts of the weapons and waited. Morale was not exactly rosy. Leutnant Neugebauer, who was with us, tried constantly to keep us going. Suddenly, the sentry on the right flank of the trench reported that a German soldier was crawling toward our position. It was a runner from Reserve Infantry Regiment 11 who was lost. Our comrade from Reserve Infantry Regiment 11 had made use of a shallow ditch in front of our position and so could close right up to it. We decided to make use of this ditch to make our escape. We discovered that altogether, that 16 of us, including Leutnant Neugebauer, were still unwounded. We agreed to crawl back at five meter intervals. Initially, all went well. Then the men began to get nervous and to run back, bent, double. The British spotted us and directed machine gun fire at us. We then simply ran back. Some of the men were killed or wounded. Physically, completely drained, we landed in the reserve position of Reserve Infantry Regiment 11. We were down to 11 men. Five had fallen to British fire. Fighting raged in the area. To the northeast, in a trench called Monster Alley, really just Pozier Trench, but further away from the village, an epic grenade battle broke out as both diggers and Germans did their best to blow each other to bits. Men crept along trench walls, throwing grenades into the traverses ahead of them before advancing to the next corner. Trench warfare was developing, changing, and advancing. And from it, this new creation of the German army was emerging, the Somkämpfer, or the Psalm fighter. These were men who were hardening on the Somme under the constant strain of relentless artillery. Men who fought in lines of shell holes and whose preferred weapon was the stick grenade. The old Pickelhaube helmet was giving way to the M1916 coal scuttle helmet, the more modern German helmet we recognize after the spiky one, heralding the arrival of a new soldier, one who fought on relentlessly even when all his officers and NCOs were dead. Men with hardened faces, grenades strung on their belts, maybe a rifle on his back, and always the sad eyes that showed they had killed other men. As horrific as BEF casualties had been since the 1st of July, 
General von Falkenhayn's apocalyptic policy of fighting for every inch of ground was making the Somme a sucking chest wound for the German army as well. From Pozier Ridge to High Wood to Delville Wood, the ground was covered with thousands of dead and dying Germans, as well as English, Scottish, South Africans, and now Australians as well. Following the attacks on the 25th, the 1st Australian Division was relieved by a sister unit, the 2nd Australian Division. In less than one week in the front line, the 1st Australian had taken over 5,100 casualties, rendering the unit combat ineffective. The 2nd Division would have to continue the fight, and over the next few days, this new crop of diggers took any remaining ruins and the cemetery that belonged to the village. With the capture of Pozier village, the role of reserve army began to transition from that of a supporting role to an independent one within the battle space. Tikval Ridge and its village remained the goal, what with its commanding views of the battlefield and all. Resources were steadily being diverted towards the reserve army more and more to the point where half of all of the supplies headed for the Somme were allotted to General Goff's men. Within Reserve Army, the role of the Anzac Corps was also changing, as the Second Corps on Anzac's left was going to use its 12th Division to push north on Tietfal and its environs. The first Anzac's actions were to become more supporting in nature for the Second Corps. On the ground, in the smoking and pitted trenches and shell holes, this shift in roles meant little. With the capture of Pozier village, the OG trenches remained a deadly impediment to success on the right flank. The ruined windmill on the Bapaume Road, just northwest of the village, was still in German hands and serving as an artillery observation post. That needed to be taken as well. The bombardment went on. Men's senses were dulled. They were surrounded by death and the constant bludgeoning of the artillery. It led to scenes such as one recorded by Australian historian C.E.W. Bean. Quote, An officer passing along K Trench saw four men playing cards. On the parapet above them was the body of their sergeant who had been playing with him, his hand when he was killed being taken by a mate. When the officer passed that way again, those four men were dead." Quote. General Goff, commander of the Reserve Army, pushed 2nd Australian's commander, Major General J. Legg, to make an attack despite the two frontline brigades being under constant bombardment from the Germans. Legg gave in and put in motion an assault on the OG lines for the night of 29th July. The 7th Australian Brigade would be the main attacking force, with the 6th Australian Brigade supporting on either flank. The attack went off following a 3-minute barrage on OG-1 and a 10-minute one on OG-2. For his part, Major General Legg hoped the wire in front of those trenches had been cut by his artillery. And once again, we're reminded that hope is not a plan. The diggers of 7th and 6th Brigades rushed forward at 15 minutes past midnight, packed in dense groups. 
The Germans already knew an attack was coming. In the center, the 7th Brigade reached the OG-2 trench, but was held up on, surprise, uncut barbed wire. It was forced back with heavy losses. On the flanks, 6th Brigade did its job on the left, capturing trenches and digging in 100 to 200 yards forward of where they had started from. On the right, two assaulting parties of infantry were mowed down as they left their trenches. The Germans also put artillery fire in between the attacking troops and their brigade headquarters. The attack fell apart. Australian troops' morale plummeted. The lack of planning on Major General Legg's part had led to this dismal showing of his division. For his part, Legg had not once consulted with 1st Division's Walker to see what he could learn about local conditions. Even Haig put it on Legg's lack of preparation, although in general, he already came to the table with low opinions of his quote-unquote colonial officers. But Goff came in for blame as well. Legg and his staff were new to the unique nightmare that was warfare on the Western Front, and he shouldn't have rushed the Australians into action. As Graham Keach noted in his Battleground Europe guide titled Pozier, quote, The loss of life which resulted was seen by the Australians as unnecessary and the fault of bad British leadership. It was to become a source of resentment and bitterness, which has continued even to this day. Unquote. Leg was given another chance, although 3,500 men in his division did not have that opportunity. They had already joined the ranks of the killed, wounded, missing, or taken prisoner. Haig, though, had the 2nd Australian Division command team more closely watched this time and much more artillery would be needed for the next assault. July gave way to August, but in this sector of hell on earth, the artillery duel went on and on. We think of these battles more in terms of the days where big attacks took place, the 1st of July, the 14th of July, and soon enough, the 15th of September. But in between these days were the other days of constant shellfire, small attacks and small counterattacks, of bombing raids, and of men hemorrhaging their precious blood into the poisoned soil of Picardy. On the 4th of August, the next attack went in, with heavy artillery having smashed up the OG trenches and the wire emplacements in front of them, but good. The artillery had also been drilling the Germans in those trenches to get used to the lifting of the bombardments. And after so many false alarms of no follow-up infantry attacks, the plan worked. The Australians pounded the trenches, lifted the barrage, and the infantry rushed into the OG-1 line. The Germans were caught just coming out of their dugouts. 7th Brigade locked on into a firestorm with the Germans located between the Roman road to Bapaume and a smaller track leading to the village of Corselet to the northeast. It was in this fight that the windmill, sitting on the highest point of Pozier Ridge, was wrenched from German hands. Losses were catastrophic. By the next day, 
The OG trenches were also secured enough to where the German threat was much reduced. The German second line had been taken here, and the crest of Pozier Ridge gave the Australians excellent views to the north. It was because of those views that the Germans weren't going to give up Pozier so easily. On the night of the 5th, a counterattack went in by units of the German 12th Division, and a Leutnant Zinnemann of Infantry Regiment 63 took part in it. His account also comes to us from Jack Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme, 1914-1916. through 1916. We set off towards evening in the direction of Pozier. Wallencourt was behind us and we approached a very dangerous place. I ran up to the commander. Herr Meyer, I urgently advise that we get off the road. We took casualties here three days ago. The enemy tries to destroy ammunition columns at this point. Yes, you have a point. Okay, get over to the left and advance across country by platoons. Off we go leaning forward slightly. Chin straps of our helmets tightened under our chins, eyes directed towards our objective. Shells hurtle over us to burst in the houses of ligny Tilois and Wallencourt, over to the right in P, and forward left in Martinpuich. Pillars of earth, black as night, fly up skywards everywhere. There is a fearful racket, sometimes too close for comfort. The German artillery fires, sending greetings over and preparing for the assault. The groups of shadowy figures push forward. The first shells are coming down. We must be near the objective. We do not know exactly where we are. It is the very worst sort of feeling. We are effectively blind, yet we feel that we are near, that they are lying in wait for us. So far, all has gone well. No casualties. A piece of luck, or is fate biding its time? We shall soon know. We run the next 100 meters. Illuminating rockets cast a spectral light on the terrain. Yes, there's a sunken road. Take cover, halt along the embankment, and have a breather. The commander arrives, and first and fourth companies dash forward another 100 meters. The assault is due to take place at 1.30 a.m., and now comes a decision. August, if I should die, farewell. I thank you for your faithful comradeship. Leutnant, you should not talk like that. August, I feel it in my bones. It's nearly over. This time, it will be tough, they say. Tonight, it is going to happen. Anyway, enough of that. Get the platoon commanders over here. They arrive at the run. Gentlemen, the attack goes in at 1.30 a.m., but we only push forward until we have passed that flat-top rise to our front and we halt with our right resting on the road. To the right, the 2nd Battalion is attacking. Okay, break a leg. We rush forward 100 meters to the first position. Let's go. Jump to it. Go. Go. Everyone leaps forward, bent double. Over there, one, two, flares. Take cover, stay still. To our front is churned up earth, craters, rifle fire. Bullets crack past us at short range. Go on, jump, throw. A few more bounds forward and we reach the remains of a freshly dug trench. There are figures lying around. Are they dead? Alive? 
Machine gun fire rips past us. What a racket it makes. They have seen us, heard us. Not only that, flares are being fired everywhere. The front is nervous and on the alert. That's bad. This isn't going to work. Assaults must have surprise. We all have hand grenades ready. It's nearly 1.30 a.m. The safety caps are unscrewed and we grip the sticks tightly. The enemy must be right in front of us and a little higher. We can judge it when a flare goes off. The direction is firmly imprinted in our minds. Now our artillery fire is landing in tight groups just to our front. We close in on each other. Our trench is very shallow. Men gather in groups wherever there is a crater. Heads tucked in, our helmets are down on our shoulders. I check my watch. A flare goes up. It's 1.30 a.m. At that same moment, the German fire lifts. Flares go up. We rush forward, our grenades exploding in a wide arc in the enemy position. There is quick succession of explosions, shouting, the flash of bayonets, more flares. Forward, go, go, piercingly shrill hurrahs, shouts and roars fill the air. Then comes a shower of enemy hand grenades. They burst and men fall. The battle is joined. We are on top of the enemy. It is truly terrifying. Figures flit before us, right and left, of us come huge bursts of fire. Bullets fly everywhere. The British machine gun rattles away. In the harsh light of numerous flares, Germans can be seen going down, cursing, moaning. The last of the grenades are thrown in the direction of the machine gun. The man on my right pulls one out, raises himself and prepares to throw. Then there is a crack, a thud, a shriek, and he collapses, shot through the arm. My Batman tears the grenade out of his cramped hand and throws it away from us. We duck and it explodes. It could have killed us all. The attack has pro only progressed 20 meters. We are caught in the open and take cover in shell holes, whilst machine gun fire scythes through the air just above our heads. Enemy artillery is bringing down heavy shells behind us. It does not get us here. We are at grenade range from the enemy. The arm is bound up. August has sacrificed the belt of his trousers. The man is quite chirpy and wants to head back. No chance of that. We are completely pinned down and cannot lift our heads one single centimeter. Spades out. We scrabble at the ground, sweating. Tonight will bring death. And tomorrow? What then? We shall be wiped out here. Okay, spades to the rescue. Soon we have dug a shallow channel and we lie along it, one behind the other. To our front we make progress, and soon our upper bodies are in cover, but our legs are still damn well out in the open. The men in rear dig around the legs of the man in front, and carefully we make our trench deeper and deeper. Bullets crack through the air above us, shells crash down and splinters fly. They can't get us that way, but they could be through us suddenly with a bayonet charge. There are very few of us here forward. The majority are dead or wounded. We can hear them. We can't help hearing them and it grates on us. Towards dawn, we are sufficiently deep down that we can crawl around. So we branch out and begin to link up. I crawl in the direction of the road, pushing past the men. Everywhere, it's the same. Gray-faced soldiers digging in and bloodied men groaning. I give out orders that the wounded 
are to be got back to Martin Buish before it gets late. Whoever can crawl has to set off along the trench. There is nothing else for it, even if they are in great pain. Once day breaks, there will be no possibility of evacuation. Everyone realizes this and they pull the groaning men along the trench, lifting them over themselves whilst lying in the trench. It is incredibly strenuous, but anxiety about the coming of day acts as a spur. I have managed to get to the road, to the trench by the road, which is totally cratered. Trees lie across it, offering some protection from small arms fire. I take an NCO with me. We are not linked up here, and that won't do. The enemy could simply roll us up from the right. So, let's go. We must make contact with the 2nd Battalion. We move along the road trench, keeping a close lookout on the other side of the road. Suddenly, we hear voices. They are Germans. We leap across the road and get down in the trench quickly. We are in luck. It's the left flank company, which is still occupying the start line. We, however, are rather further forward. The battalion was shot to a standstill, and now they are back in the original position. With the German attack defeated, the 2nd Australian Division now counted 12 days in the line. The second wave of diggers had lost over 6,800 men during that time. So, in stepped the 4th Australian Division to take over the newly won positions, which were in a salient. The German guns poured their fire into this salient. So it went for the next days. To the right of the Australian lines, the battle from Munster Alley continued through the first days of August. Involved in the protracted fight here was a Lieutenant George Sainton K. Butterworth, an officer in the 13th Durham Light Infantry. In late July, Butterworth was wounded, but he returned with his battalion to Butterworth Trench, a position dug under his watch on August 2nd. George Butterworth was not a soldier by trade. In fact, he was a man like millions of others in that he was caught up in the times and sucked into the war along with everyone else around him. Butterworth stood out, however, in that he was already known as a composer of classical music. His works, The Banks of Green Willow and A Shropshire Lad, were already famous. But George had answered the call of country, and fate had found him on the Somme in 1916. The Durham men launched an attack on Munster Alley in Tor Trench, a position past Munster Alley, after a long smashing by the artillery starting on the 4th of August. A large section of Munster Alley was seized, and a few men of the second wave reached Tor Trench. There, they got into a bombing fight against the Germans, who put up stiff resistance. The call went out for reinforcements. Butterworth's company made itself ready, but friendly artillery fire landing danger close made progress towards Munster Alley slow. Butterworth reached Munster Alley around a quarter to four in the morning on the 5th of August. An hour later, he was dead, and England lost another rising talent 
who would have made the world a nicer place with more of his gentle music. The account of his death was told by Brigadier General Croft, Butterworth's brigade commander, as recorded in Graham Keach's Posier. Quote, Before light, I went up the line to find out the exact situation. I went up to the farthest point reached by Lieutenant K. Butterworth. The trench was very low and broken, and he kept urging me to keep low down. I had only reached the battalion headquarters on my return when I heard poor Butterworth, a brilliant musician in times of peace, and an equally brilliant soldier in times of stress, was shot dead by a bullet through the head. So he, who had been so thoughtful for my safety, had suffered the fate he had warned me against only a minute before." Unquote. Butterworth's body was never recovered. His name today is chiseled into the Tikval Memorial, joining the other 72,000-plus names of other Britisher and Dominion men whose bodies were obliterated by the fighting on the Somme. Going back to the 1st Anzac Corps, the 4th Australian Division spent the first week and a half engaged in small-scale, costly, and constant attacks that exhausted the troops for little gain in terms of shell-torn ground. These were the, quote, line-straightening operations, unquote, that are so bitterly remembered. The artillery battle, of course, continued unabated, and the losers were all of the diggers and sump camphor hunkering down in their trenches and shell holes. Well, them and the gun crews, too. The constant everything, constant shelling, constant trench digging, constant raids, attacks and counterattacks, and the growing and constant lack of water and food were draining morale on the Australian side. But attack plans continued. Reserve Army was becoming more and more independent, and it put its focus on wresting Tipval from the Germans. To do that, the Ferme de Mouquet, or Mouquet Farm on the maps, had to be taken. Mouquet Farm led to, lay to the southeast of Tipval and was used as a command post for the local area by the Germans. The farm was the home of a local factory owner and consisted of a row of main buildings, a row of back buildings, and an enclosed courtyard. For the area of farmland and the hardy peasant stock that populated it, this house was pretty money. The pre-war picture of the farm shows a compound of a well-kept but rugged and working farm. Once the Germans were permanently settled as occupiers, they set to work digging out tunnels and dugouts under the buildings, connecting them to the existing cellars. All combined, the dugouts under Mouquet Farm could accommodate some 200 men, and in trench warfare, 200 men on the defensive could potentially hold up an attack several times larger. As a quick aside, you may have noticed I'm calling the place Mukai Farm. I grew up knowing it as Mukau Farm and Mucky Farm, that familiar Brit bastardization of French place names. But a footnote 
in Malia Hampton's fine work titled Attack on the Somme, first Anzac Corps in the Battle of Pozier Ridge, 1916, sets the record straight on what the men who fought there called it by its actual name, or as close as they could come to it. The original French Ferme de Mouquet was used, but for those new to French, it may have been Mouquet, Mouquette, or Mauk. Mukau and Mucky Farm appear to have come after the battle for the place. I bring this up because if you're listening to this podcast, then it means you love details like this. Attacks in the direction of Mukai Farm began on the 8th of August, and due to the frontage, only battalion-sized attacks could be launched. Of course, this takes us back to our piecemeal efforts quandary that proved so recklessly destructive of manpower on the Somme. The British 12th Division on the Australian left was unable to capture a particular German strongpoint, and that led to heavy fire into the attacking diggers. The approaches to Mukai Farm from the Australian lines were wide open fields with little dips that afforded little protection. Frequently, Australian troops had to advance to their frontline positions in plain sight of the enemy at Mukai Farm and its surrounding trenches because of the terrible state of the ground, and they did not go untouched. It was the same with attacks. There were no woods or other geographical defense features other than a nearby quarry, and this offered only limited protection at that. The attack ground to a halt with a gain of 200 yards. From there, the Australians dug in and just shelled it out with the Germans. On the 11th of August, the Germans launched a counterattack out of Mukai Farm, and a large body of German troops did their best to use the rolling farmland to their advantage. It was a no-go. They were caught by enfilading Lewis gun teams that shredded them and held them in place until artillery crashed down and obliterated the whole lot. And so it continued. Attack and counterattack, and Australian lines crept ever closer to the pounded ruins of the farm. The story of the battle for Mukai Farm does not have many high points. It is a grinding battle, within a grinding battle for Pozier Ridge, within a grinding campaign on the Somme. But this is the essence of the Battle of the Somme. These small company and battalion-sized combat operations over a strong point in a body-filled trench in some field, or a rush to the corner of some artillery-shattered wood. Combat operations were constant and ongoing, driving men to the point where exhaustion and shell shock left them as sleepwalkers in the, on the battlefield, indifferent to death. The Germans kept up their counterattacks. On the 14th of August, the 4th Australian Division pushed another attack in the direction of the farm, for the attacking units were to go around it. It was all very confused. The staff culture at the 1st Anzac Corps was not one of lessons learned and innovation. And with General Goff pushing for more action, Corps Commander Birdwood accepted deepening the deadly salient with more hasty attacks. 
So we have hasty, rushed attacks. And despite the fact we've been talking about it for the past few minutes, the trenches around Mukay Farm were the priority to Lieutenant General Birdwood, not the farm itself. This despite the fact that battlefield reports were coming in telling of large numbers of Germans heading towards or out of the ruins of the farm. So an inadequate bombardment was put down on the place, and the resulting Australian attack was shredded by German machine gunners and riflemen who had survived the weak barrage. The 51st West Australian and 13th New South Wales Battalions were mauled in the attack, and the 50th South Australian Battalion on the far left of the attack front was just devastated. Conditions at the front were horrific. Malia Hampton writes of the 50th Battalion suffering 150 men killed and wounded due to a heavy German bombardment on the day of the attack, and that a ration party of 16 men soon saw 15 of them taken out by artillery. 50th Battalion quickly took over 300 casualties in the field, including its commander and most of the officers. The 4th Australian Division had taken more than 4,600 losses up to this point. On the 15th of August, the 4th Australian Division was relieved by the 1st Australian, in for their second tour in Pozieres. The diggers of the 1st Division pushed on with more attacks, and Australian troops entered the ruins of Mukay Farm on the 22nd. They had to pull out that night, but they had finally been able to get in. That day, the 1st Division was relieved by the 2nd Australian Division, having lost another 2,600 men. But Lieutenant General Birdwood was now at least aware that Mukay Farm was the center of German resistance, and that it needed to be wiped out. The 2nd Division, despite not receiving enough reinforcements to refill its ranks, launched its own attacks on the 26th. It was a two-battalion operation. They were met with fierce German machine gun fire that bit into the attacking soldiers. Australian men managed to rush forward and hit zigzag trench that led out of the farm's footprint. And then they swung right and got into a fight for the ruins. The battle was finally at the farm. It had taken the month to move the lines a few hundred yards forward. The way behind was paved with Australian dead. The problem was not just the small size of the operations at small and very local objectives, but the Australian artillery as well. They were certainly putting out rounds towards the enemy. But the bombardment frequently fell on the objective and stayed too close to it thereafter for the infantry to attack, or the bombardment just hit the wrong coordinates. Again, it was all very confused as the state of the ground gave up little or no reference points. The artillery battle raged on around the attack objectives, and many times no one was quite sure just where they were exactly, according to the trench maps. The last Australian attack on Mukay Farm came on the 3rd of September, and it was made by the 4th Division. Each 
division had now done or was doing a second tour through the Pozier sector. This time, it would be a three-battalion attack, part of a larger offensive, with Reserve Army pushing on Tipval and 4th Army pushing to the east at Guillemont and Delville Wood. The 1st Canadian Brigade came under Anzac command to take over the line to the left of the attack front. From left to right, the Australian battalions were the 51st West Australian, the 52nd Southwest Australian and Tasmanian, and the 49th Queensland. The 51st would take Mukay Farm. The 52nd would take Fabek Graben, or Fabek Trench, to the west. And the 49th would seize Coleman Trench to the west of Fabek Trench. The attack went in at 10 minutes past 5 a.m. on the 3rd. And the 49th Battalion made a good advance on Coleman Trench on the right of the attack front. On the left, the diggers of the 51st swept over the ground and into Fabek Graben. Follow-on troops of the 51st broke into the wood and masonry rubble piles of Muke Farm, seizing the farm again. Then, they rushed into the dugouts and tunnels under the compound. Now, the battle was not just over a patch of earth. It was taking place in it. In the center, the 52nd Battalion faced heavy machine gun fire from strong points at Fabek Graben, but after some time, the machine gun and its team was eliminated and Fabek Trench seized. Muke Farm in the immediate area was under Australian control. But I say that because, of course, it was not to last. A powerful counterattack was launched by the Germans at 8 in the morning throwing the Australians out of almost everything they had captured. Artillery slammed into the diggers at Muke Farm as well. An account of the attack, again from Sheldon's German army on the Somme, comes from a reserve Leutnant Kruger of the German 5th Regiment Foot Guards. Towards 3 a.m., we noticed clouds of gas, which did not affect us but caused me to bring the company up to the highest alert state. It was nerve-wracking for everyone. Eyes and ears strained to observe no man's land, which was filled with the spectral light of flares. But nothing happened. The gas dispersed, and the clock ticked on to 6 a.m. Tired, I lay down on the ground and had hardly dropped off into a deep sleep when that faithful runner, Gefreiter Eichelmann, woke me with a shout. Leutnant, the British are coming. I leapt to my feet and saw before me a sea of flame and smoke. Stinging fumes were getting into lungs and eyes. I could only see Eichelmann as a shadow, surrounded by fog, into which he was calmly firing. Tiredness disappeared instantly. I made the defenders move forward out of the trenches where the smoke was clinging and making breathing difficult in order to keep up a calm rate of rifle fire. We were confronted by an amazing spectacle. As far as the eye could see, the sky was lit by innumerable flares. Red and green signal rockets fired by both sides cut broad arcs in the light of dawn. Machine guns hammered away ceaselessly and rifle fire rang out. Heavy and super-heavy shells crashed down and burst, whilst over our heads, 
came the bright flashes of the devil's brew from the flamethrowers, which splashed its liquid fire down on us, singeing clothing, beards, hair, and skin. If the Tommies believed they could crack us with this latest surprise, then they were deluding themselves badly. The Prussian guards, battle-tested and used to victory, were fighting here. Standing in thick smoke and surrounding by flaming blazes were the unshakable grenadiers, burnt and as black as chimney sweeps. But taking careful aim and calmly picking off the soldiers in their plate-like helmets as they leapt from shell hole to shell hole. The enemy soon saw that he was gnawing at granite here, and he disappeared in short order into the dawn of Sunday. With the counterattack, the Australians were thrown back. The men of the 52nd Battalion fell back to their jump-off points. This left the 51st Battalion at Mouquet with its flanks in the air, and the Germans took advantage of the situation. A group of Australians remained at the farm under heavy fire. They were led by a Lieutenant Clifford, who managed to get out a last message to the rear. Quote, Being hard-pressed, enemy bombing up our trench from both ends. Strong point to our left has not been cleared, as they are sniping from our rear. Trench half full of wounded and dead. Only about 30 men with me. No sign of communication trench to us from the farm as yet. Lost trace of 52nd, unquote. Graham Keach notes that some eight years later, a filled-in trench in front of Mouquet Farm was dug up, revealing several remains identified as Australians. It is likely these were Lieutenant Clifford and his men. With the German counterattack and recapture of Mouquet Farm for a second time, the 4th Australian Division's 2nd rotation through Pozier Ridge was over. The division was relieved that day by the 1st Canadian Division, even as the battle continued. The Canadians were immediately embroiled in the ongoing struggle, coming under heavy artillery fire and facing weak but numerous German attacks the next day. The 4th Australian Division pulled out of the line and started its journey towards the Ypres salient, where its sister 1st and 2nd Australian Divisions were already located. The Anzac's time on the Somme was done. For now. In six weeks, the Australians had advanced the front line in their sector a total of a mile and a half at a cost of 23,000 men killed, missing, wounded, or taken prisoner. It was a heavy price to pay, and the memorial at the windmill has inscribed on it that diggers, quote, fell more thickly on this ridge than any other battlefield of the war, unquote. To the Australians, it was proof that their men had been abused and wasted recklessly by General Gough, his staff, and the rest of the British Army. The lions led by donkeys sentiment retains some strength in Australian consciousness today, although they are not shy to aim criticism at their own wartime leaders. The fight for Mouquet Farm went on, 
its capture as yet unrealized. In our next episode, however, we're going to shift to the east as well as take a look at the southern part of the Psalm front throughout August of 1916. We'll visit High Wood and revisit the Poilus of Fayol's 6th Army to see how their offensive was coming along. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcasts at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War page on the Facebook. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to contribute to it, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Just leaving a starred review is a huge help to the show. But of course, if you have a moment and feel so inclined, please consider leaving a few of your thoughts on the show as well. Feedback, of course, is wicked awesome. And if you would like to make a financial contribution towards keeping server lines open or towards more research material, please visit firstworldwarpodcast.com. The PayPal button there will let you make the donation of your choice. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.